0: This episode includes depictions of graphic violence and brief discussions of colonialism and racism. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Please note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any one story of Nain Rouge. Today's episode combines features from a number of North American legends for dramatic effect. Hello all, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original from Parcast. Each week we brave the arid deserts, frozen wastes, and deepest seas in search of legendary monsters. It's time to risk our very lives to pluck universal truths from the beast's jaws. Because deep down, we're all afraid of something. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today we head to Detroit, Michigan, but this isn't the motor city you think you know. Long before the invention of the Cadillac car, there was Cadillac the man. He was an explorer who founded the French settlement now known as Detroit in 1701. It said the Cadillac ran afoul of a local spirit, a forest guardian with a wicked sense of humor called the Nain Rouge. Deadly wars, fires, and blizzards would follow, and the curse remains to this very day. Coming up, a mischievous imp sets the world on fire.
1: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon.
0: When you think of Detroit now, you probably think of car factories and urban decay. Few things have come easy for this Midwestern city. And if you ask the locals, many of them are eager to explain why. Long before Michigan was an American state, the Great Lakes were part of New France, a Canadian territory dominated by fur trappers. In 1701, a surveyor named Antoine de la Mothe Cadillac and his wife attended a party hosted by the governor of New France. Cadillac was about to head south to found the settlement we now call Detroit. During the party, he was confronted by Mère Minique, a sorceress of some renown in Quebec. She warned him that he must make sure to appease the mischievous Nain Rouge, a red demon that still inhabits the strait between Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. If he did not, he would die in disgrace. Cadillac acknowledged the warning and then promptly forgot about it. After all, things went well at first. Cadillac had relatively peaceful interactions with the indigenous communities living in the area, and the colony flourished. But soon enough, Cadillac began charging the colonists rent and leveraging his power against the local inhabitants. His wife saw her husband's greed and reminded him of the sorceress's warning. As soon as her words left her lips, the couple was confronted by the Nain Rouge, a crimson-skinned imp with eerie, glowing eyes. Cadillac lashed out with his cane, telling the creature to leave them alone. In response, the spirit merely laughed and vanished. After that, life quickly went south for Cadillac. He was tried for corruption in Montreal, removed from governorship, and died in France. His descendants inherited nothing of the vast swaths of land he had amassed. The city he founded didn't fare much better. It faced fire, violence, and chaos many times over. Some Detroiters claim to have seen the Nain Rouge before each tragedy. Others said he caused the catastrophes. To this day, people say he's a harbinger of doom. Regardless, you don't wanna see him, especially when your city is already in crisis. Men were jollier when they were about to die. William had seen it again and again during the Revolution, in Stillwater, Saratoga, and Monmouth. Now it was 1812. Their country had won independence, but it was still new. New and teetering on the edge of a knife, with Britain holding the handle. His soldiers didn't acknowledge the precarious nature of their new life. They sang, danced, cracked jokes. They pretended they couldn't hear the rifle drills, the marching feet. The commotion just beyond the thin strip of woods outside Fort Detroit. The night hid it all from view. But the instability was there, and it had been a long time coming. William never wanted to be governor of Michigan. He'd been enjoying peacetime in Massachusetts. But President Jefferson had given him an order, so William packed up his household and headed west in 1805. He'd imagined Detroit as a small but thriving settlement. What he found was ash. The whole city had recently burned to the ground. Only after rebuilding everything was he able to move on to the reason for his arrival. William had been tasked with purchasing territory to make the United States larger. It had gone well at the start. The indigenous communities understood the Americans' power, except the Shawnee. William was terrified of the Shawnee. Their leader, Tecumseh, was a living folk hero, and his brother, Tenskwatawa, was hailed as a prophet among their people. It was the Shawnee who waited on the other side of those woods, just out of sight of his troops, them and their British allies, ready to tear the United States apart. Everything had happened so fast, Troops amassed in Canada and Ohio, Detroit sat in the vice between them. It was an unenviable position, but William would follow his orders once he received them from Washington. William paced in his tent beside the Detroit River, anxiety brewing in his gut. He heard a soft rap on the post outside his tent. The flap lifted before he could give the order to come in. The boy was too short for a soldier, a tag along, most likely. He swayed on his feet, face flushed from the night air. William almost asked if he was drunk, but that would have invited a longer conversation. The boy offered William a letter marching orders. They were at war. William told the boy to go to the cook fire. Someone would find him accommodations for the night. The boy stared back at him. His eyes were the strangest gray, almost white. And in this candlelight, in this candlelight, there looked like there were red flecks in there as well, like blood on a frozen river. William tried to hold his gaze, but every time he did, his eyes slipped away, like his body was protecting itself from staring into the sun. A sense of unease crept up his spine, but he told himself it was only the guilt about the boy's inevitable fate. He would likely die. Civilians were always at risk in wartime. Where'd you come from, young man? The boy tilted his head. Here, Governor, Detroit. William furrowed his brow. So you got this from another messenger from Ohio maybe? The boy let out a short laugh, like a bird call. He swallowed it quickly, though he seemed to still be holding the giggles in as he continued, have a good war, sir. Then he turned and sprinted out of the tent, the front sheet flapping in the wind behind him. William's brow furrowed. He called in his aide, Thomas, and asked him what he thought of the young messenger. Thomas gave him a strange look. I didn't see anyone, sir. It wasn't the Nain Rouge, was it? William lifted an eyebrow. The what? Thomas scratched the back of his neck self-consciously. Cadillac's folly, sir, a scarlet-faced imp who appears before misfortune strikes Detroit. Seeing William's expression, he quickly added... Many saw him during the fire. I watched him exit a burning shop, looking barely singed. I'm sorry, sir. The the, the boy was probably just a very good spy. William knew a spy made the most sense. He could have slipped away in the chaos of the camp. But the imp Thomas mentioned was a curious superstition. So what's the little creature's goal, then? Thomas said... Not sure there is a goal, sir. All I know is he's always smiling. It's all very funny to him. Well, at least someone was having a good time. William shook his head. They had enough of a morale problem already without listening to these sorts of tales. It's a chilling story, Thomas, but we are Americans. Our future is up to us, not to spirits and folklore. Thomas nodded, but William wasn't sure he believed him. He looked down at the letter. It bore the president's seal. It certainly appeared legitimate, but the report within it had to be wrong. The American spies had estimated that the enemy force was less than a thousand men, which meant that Williams' forces outnumbered them more than two to one. Victory didn't just seem certain. It seemed easy. Far, far too easy. Coming up, our governor braves no man's land.
1: Put yourself in the shoes of a real life detective. Imagine examining the crime scene, gathering evidence and interviewing witnesses, feeling the pressure mount as you race against time to catch a criminal. Each week on Scotland Yard Confidential, the new Spotify original from Parkcast, we enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history, following in their footsteps as they hunt down suspects and solve seemingly impossible cases. Like the scandalous murder of singer Cora Crippen in 1910, whose body was found in her cellar shortly after her husband skipped town. Or the daring Hatton Garden heist of 2015, when a gang of elderly thieves made off with a haul worth millions. And the cryptic notes found at a murder scene during the First World War. Was it a clue or a red herring designed to throw investigators off? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast made in partnership with Noiser, airing episodes weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen to Scotland Yard Confidential for free on Spotify.
0: Now back to the story. William should have been happy. According to the spy report, this battle was going to be an easy victory. With the numbers on their side, they simply needed to march across the field, through the forest and straight into the British camp. But fog was rolling in and William was still worried. How could the British be so lacking in manpower? They'd been preparing for an invasion. If the spies were wrong, William and his men would have to retreat and buckle down for a long siege. It was late summer. The fall chill would come soon. He wasn't sure how long Detroit could last. More than anything, he wondered about the boy who had delivered the message. His unnatural eyes. The more William tried to recall their interaction, the redder the boy's face became in his memory. His aide seemed to think he'd seen the Nain Rouge. William doubted that. Devils dwelled in the mind, not on earth. No matter how odd the boy had seemed, William needed a walk. He donned his hat and headed for the river. The fog was thick over the water. If you weren't careful, you could tumble in and be carried downriver to the British camp within minutes. They were so close, yet so far. Only night and the forest lay between them. He and his officers had considered mounting an assault on them from the river that bordered both their camps, but the current was too difficult to navigate in the dark. They would have to pick their way through the thin line of forest between the camps if they wanted to mount an attack at night. He'd know whether the spy's report was right or wrong if he waited until the morning. But if they did have the numbers, night was the time to press the advantage. If he played his cards right, no one would die. There would be no calamity for the Nain Rouge to celebrate. (laughs) As soon as the thought crossed William's mind, a flash of red darted through the swirling gray. Then it appeared again, 15 feet away, far faster than any living being could move. Jolly laughter shook the mist. William drew his pistol. Who's there? Show yourself. A silhouette emerged from the gloom. It was bent over, convulsing, cackling. The Nain Rouge was a small man, about three feet tall with ruby skin and long yellow teeth. He had the same glinting, strange eyes as the boy. The imp greeted him with a giggle. (laughs) William didn't return the favor. So you're the creature I've heard about, the prophet of doom, bringer of calamity. (laughs) Nain laughed again and it spoke. I never bring chaos, governor, I only witness it. Surely you can understand that. You're a man of war after all. You know what's about to happen. William's skin crawled. He suspected, yes, but he didn't know. How could he know what would happen to him and his men? Nain smirked. Oh, William, how self-centered of you. This land was French not long ago, and it was the home to many others before that. How do you know you aren't about to drive your enemies out for good? William chewed on his mustache. That would be in line with what the spy report had said. It indicated that the opposition had received no reinforcements, even though the whole British Army had been marching south from Ottawa for weeks. Someone should have gotten there by now. This had to be a trick. Nain sighed. All right, all right, you don't believe me. Give it a think, a day or two. You've got superior numbers. You can afford to wait. God, William hoped so. The Nain Rouge's smile extended from one ear to the other, a yellow slit surrounded by bloody, glinting red. The fog swirled once more and he was gone. (laughs) William finally lowered his pistol. The world around him was still. Even the river seemed to have slowed. He pulled his coat tight and walked back into camp. There, his men waited, weapons and bags in hand. Thomas rushed over. Sir, we received a missive from the British, direct from General Brock. He shoved the letter into William's hand. William looked down at it like he'd been handed the corpse of a rat. Who brought it? He wasn't sure if he wanted to see the flush-faced boy again. Thomas lowered his voice. One of Tecumseh's men, sir. William didn't relax. A message from the enemy was still just that. He pulled the ribbon free and broke the red seal. Despite all his efforts, the paper shook in his hand. William was glad it was still a foggy night. Perhaps Thomas couldn't see his tremors. He scanned the page, taking in General Brock's handwriting. To Brigadier General Hull, with all due haste. The force at my disposal authorizes me to require of you the immediate surrender of Fort Detroit. It is far from my intention to join in a war of extermination, but you must be aware that the numerous body of Indians who have attached themselves to my troops will be beyond my control the moment the contest commences. With respectful regards, I, Brock Major General. William raised his head slowly. It's a bluff, he said, as if anyone else had actually read the letter. Thomas looked at him, confused. It had to be a bluff. The alternative was too terrifying. He'd heard of the horrors of a prolonged siege before. There would be the initial shelling of the fort, damaging towers and food stores, then the hunger and the cold, then the treason, the murder, the question of what to do with the bodies when the food stores were low. And through it all, the Nain Rouge would be dancing, dancing until the whole fort was set aflame. He shook off these unsettling thoughts, Brock was trying to scare him. It was a desperate move from a desperate man and William would reveal it. He knew just how he would do it too. William swallowed, pushing his fear as deep down as it could go. Draw the men back to Fort Detroit. We have reinforcements coming from Ohio. We must bolster protection so they can forge ahead. Thomas stood unmoving, puzzled. Is there a response for the major general, sir?" William stiffened. I will deliver it myself. Brock knows he is outnumbered. Bring James and Hamilton to me. We're going over. Thomas was alarmed, and understandably so. This was highly irregular, but William waved away the man's concerns. Brock will comport himself with all due honor. Despite our differences, we come from the same tradition. The man would obey the rules of engagement even when caught in a lie. James and Hamilton were still bleary eyed when they joined up with William. They clutched their rifles as they marched across the field and into the forest, waving a white flag to signal their intention to parley. They walked in silence, wet leaves crunching beneath their mud caked boots. At first, there were only a few cook fires visible between the trees. The tall silhouettes of Shawnee warriors moved through the firelight. He began to count out of habit. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 50 more, 100, 200. According to the spies, that had been the extent of Tecumseh's fighting force in the area. So why were there more? He could see a group crafting arrows, shaving wood with a long blade, sharper and sharper. William forced himself to look away. William, James, and Hamilton moved between the trees, flag still waving. They crossed beyond the tree line and onto the other side of the field. Small glints of light poked through the thick fog. There were so many campfires. So many, hundreds, which meant thousands upon thousands of soldiers. Reinforcements wouldn't help with an army of this size. They might not even be able to lock down the fort in time. There would be no hunger or freezing, no long, hard winter, just death. The spies were wrong. They were all wrong. William had always believed that the citizens of New France had wanted to be liberated from the influence of the crown, the terror of the tribes that surrounded them. But they had rallied around this British general. The United States wasn't welcome here. It was a calamity. A call rang out. Who goes there? James shouted out their names and ranks. The watchmen laughed. William felt a tremor in the pit of his stomach the sound was familiar. The watchman swung his lantern wide, beckoning them forward. William stifled a gasp as the glow danced on the man's face. He had icy red eyes. Coming up, William tries to save his settlement and himself. Now back to the story. William peered through the fog, trying to glean as many details of the British camp as he could. Many voices intermingled in the gloom. He could hear laughter. Real, joyful laughter. There was no play acting here. These men didn't worry they were going to die. He craned his neck to get a look at the watchmen as he led them farther into the British camp. The man looked normal now. His skin was pink, not red. His eyes were gray, not bloody ice. He didn't know what it meant or whose side the Nain Rouge was on now. Shouldn't the beast have cared that Detroit was about to fall? More than fall, Detroit would be erased from all maps as if it were never a settlement at all. It would have nothing to laugh at then. It had to understand that. Would the Nain Rouge even exist without its home? William shivered as the watchman walked them by a group of fierce-looking fighters. The watchman stopped abruptly. Major General Brock emerged from his tent. He was a tall, imperious man with heavy eyebrows and a shock of silver hair. He looked William up and down. Brigadier General, this is a surprise. I assume you got our letter. You see how things are. He gestured vaguely at the camp around them. The sea of campfires crackled in the fog like stars. William nodded silently. He kept searching the general's eyes for signs of white or red, but they stayed a deep oaken brown. Another figure stepped forward, equally tall with deep black hair and tawny skin. The man was unmistakable, Tecumseh, the figure of William's nightmares the vengeance that had roared towards him for years and years, as inevitable as a thunderstorm. Truly, the missive had been their letter, Brock and Tecumseh's. The Shawnee would give no quarter and the British would reap the reward. William knew he was cornered. He considered Detroit. Maybe they could face a siege. Maybe. Reinforcements would come up from Ohio as long as they could last, and as long as President Madison believed the northern frontier was worth fighting for. Brock's voice brought him back to reality. What is your answer? For the first time, William felt James and Hamilton beside him. They were both young men, the same age as the nephew William had raised as his own. He would not let them perish for his mistakes. He was a general, yes, but a governor first. A governor put the lives of his constituents first, even if he never wanted to be a governor in the first place. he heard a chuckle inside his head. The sound was deep and dark and clear. The Nain Rouge. The laughter grew louder and louder, echoing around the cold cavern of his mind. Soon, another laugh joined it. It was William's voice. William's laughter echoing the Nain Rouge, who was now, it seemed, his best military advisor. It was just so funny, Death, so very very funny. He tried to cover his mouth, but the giggles still came. It was absurd. He reminded himself of the stakes, the people counting on him, the nightmares he had about their suffering. But that was silly. Everyone suffered. That was the wisdom of the Nain Rouge. William convulsed, almost choked as the laughter tried to fight its way out. Finally, 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 his wheezes became gasps. He slowly removed his hands from his face. Brock and Tecumseh were staring at him. There was no explanation he could give. So he said what he should have said a long time ago. I surrender Detroit. Brock's face didn't change. You are authorized to do so? William nodded. If I may have your desk to write the terms... Brock smiled for the first time. In under an hour, they hammered out unequivocal terms. William handed over his sword, and he and his escort left the British camp. No one laughed. The walk back was quiet. Only the wind and the snap of twigs filled the silence. James and Hamilton gave him a wide berth. They reached the American camp, It was already mostly empty, as William had ordered. Not that it mattered. They were all going to be prisoners of war. James and Hamilton broke off to deliver the news, shoulders slumped and eyelids heavy. The sun was rising bit by bit, bathing the world in a glow of yellow. William turned back to look at Brock's camp one more time. It was smaller than it should have been, much smaller, A pit opened up in William's stomach. With shaking hands, he raised a spyglass to his eye. Brock's tent was as he remembered it, a wide island in a sea of men. A group of maybe a hundred Shawnee warriors waited off to the side. A sea of doused campfires dotted the field. But there were no tents beside them. No men... William realized suddenly that there had never been men at the fires at all. It was a trick, using the fog to make a small force seem like thousands. It was a trick? William felt a buzz in his ear. It grew into a squeak, then a giggle, then a guffaw. He felt the air go hotter around him, stinging his skin. He lowered the glass, knowing what he would see. The Nain Rouge was in front of him, cheeks even rosier than usual. Yes, a trick I wish I had devised myself. General Brock and his friend Tecumseh are men after my own heart. Very refined, too. But you, William, you were certain the Shawnee were going to tear you to shreds. <laughs> Without hesitation, William drew his pistol and pointed it at the red man. He pulled the trigger. The flint struck the steel with a click. The demon laughed again. (laughs) Wet gunpowder! All this fog! He tugged the gun from William's hands. Come now, we've had enough calamity for one day. William fell to his knees. There was nothing to be done. He couldn't take it back, even if he wished he'd never come to this cursed city at all. The laughter stopped. The Nain Rouge placed a hand on William's shoulder. Come now, Detroit was French before this, and they took the land from its original inhabitants. Now it will have been American too. Change is chaos, and chaos is change. We march ever forward. Not you, though. You're going to be found guilty of cowardice and maybe executed. (laughs) History has always had its losers, after all. Then he disappeared in a swirl of flame and fog. William sat there in the mist, waiting, waiting for what came next, because the Nain Rouge had told him so. And when the Nain Rouge spoke, you could only listen. On August 16, 1812, Brigadier General William Hull surrendered his 2,500 American troops into the hands of Major General Isaac Brock and Tecumseh's Confederacy, ending the siege of Detroit. Hull had thought he was facing superior numbers, but he'd made a horrible mistake. Brock and Tecumseh's fighting force was just over 1,300 men. After this military embarrassment, Hull was charged with cowardice, neglect of duty, and treason. He was found guilty of the first two and sentenced to death. Before he was granted mercy by James Madison, Legends say that he claimed he saw the Nain Rouge in the fog the night before the surrender, reveling in the impending disaster. This version of Nain Rouge can be interpreted as a manifestation of colonizer anxiety, a fever dream in the mind of occupiers who disrespected the indigenous population and paid dearly for it. But the Nain Rouge may have much older roots, roots that took hold long before Europeans ever set foot by the Great Lakes. Before Detroit was Detroit, it was Bekejwanong, this was a village and hunting ground for many indigenous peoples. They all met in Bekejuanong to swap both goods and stories. One of the most common were tales of the Pukwaji, the so-called little people of the wilderness. The Pukwaji loved tricks of all kinds, but their purported level of malevolence varied according to who was telling the tale. The Abenaki said they were mischievous, but ultimately harmless as long as you treated them with respect. While the Wampanoag believed that in addition to their harmless trickster nature, they kidnapped children and caused deadly accidents, the French trappers brought their own fairy folklore to New France in the form of loutons, mischievous house spirits who often appeared in the guise of cats. Many folklorists theorize that Nain Rouge is a combination of both Loutons and Pakwajis, a blend of French and indigenous culture that is unique to the Great Lakes region. But regardless of its origins, Nain's legacy has never been simple. He's been seen before fires, blizzards, and deadly riots. Now he makes a yearly appearance in the city's Marche de Nain Rouge, an annual parade where he threatens Detroiters only to be repelled by their chants and positivity. Like his city, Nain has his own kind of resilience. He grows and changes as Detroit does, but he never defeats his city. Not really. So maybe he's a test, a sign that not even a crimson-skinned demon can keep the Motor City down. That goes for the city as a whole though, not individuals. Every calamity has their victims. And Nain will be there to dance on their graves. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with another mischievous monster. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Lil DeRitter and Jen Roche, with writing assistance by Robert Teamstra and Nora Battel fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Vanessa Richardson.
1: Scotland Yard Confidential is the new Spotify original from Parcast. Enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history as they crack seemingly impossible cases. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen for free on Spotify.